Welcome to Heart of the Matter. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Welcome you all here tonight. Listen, are you looking forward to getting a copy of Born Again Mormon Moving Toward Christian Authenticity? There's three ways to do it. You can get it at Benchmark Books in Salt Lake City. They have a website. They're on Main Street. You can get it at Christian Gift and Bible in Sandy. I believe they're on State Street too. And you can also go to www.bornagainmormon.com and get a book there. If you can't afford one, you don't have to go through PayPal. You can just uh, go to the free book and explain to us that you're having financial hardship and we'll send it out to you gratis. All right, we're also getting an abundance of emails loaded with questions, 5, 10, 15 questions, and the LDS writers are getting very annoyed with me because I am not personally responding to each one of their questions. And what happens is they, they ask me the questions very nicely, and then I don't respond to them the way they want, or I don't respond at all to those questions, and then they write back and say, you, you are a charlatan because you're not answering my questions, and I don't respond to that. And then they say, you are a fraudulent deceiver out to bring people to hell because you can't even answer my questions. Look how dumb you are, and it just accelerates. And, and the reason I bring this up is because last week I had 28 emails uh, attacking me on this way because I wasn't answering the certain question uh, in the way they wanted and they don't think I have the ability to answer their questions and you have to understand something the purpose of our show is to share Jesus Christ it really is and I use the show to compare biblical Christianity with Mormonism and that is why I go into Mormonism in depth here my purpose is not to debate with you uh, my purpose is not to be a better arguer than you or any of that. My purpose is to share Jesus Christ as the only way. And that happens through spiritual rebirth through faith. That's really the bottom line message. If you have a little pet question you want answered, and I'm not giving you it to your satisfaction, there's plenty of resources on the internet you can find your answers to. One of the questions that's constantly que asked this past week is give the reference of where Boyd K. Packer said that a child who goes wayward would live with their parents again because the parents were sealed in the temple. Uh, it got to the point where they're saying I was lying, and I want to read it to you. It comes from the Ensign, May uh, 1992. Michael, this is for you. It is not uncommon for re responsible parents to lose one of their children for a time to influence over which they have no control. They agonize over rebellious sons and daughters. They are puzzled over why they are so helpless when they have tried so hard to do what they should. It is my conviction that those wicked influences one day will be overruled. We cannot overemphasize the value of temple marriage, the binding ties of the sealing ordinance, and the standards of worthiness required of these parents. When parents keep the covenants they have made at the altar of the temple, their children will forever be bound to them. Apostle Boyd K. Backer, Our Moral Environment, Ensign, May 1992, page 68. I really don't uh, give quotes or references on the show that I can't back up. Um, and sometimes I might make a reference, and, and, and I'm wrong times too, I, believe me. But, you know, let's just try to get beyond the minutiae and try to stick to the focal point. Are you born again? Do you know if you died you'll live with the Savior at that moment? That's the most important thing for Latter-day Saints to know. Okay, uh, there it is. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we love you and thank you. We pray uh, for the viewers of the show tonight. We pray for me trying to host this thing, that I'll say what you want me to say. Pray for our operators, the camera operators, uh, the station, and Lord, just that we will learn truth on a kind of a difficult subject, Lord, to understand in Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
most things that we use in this life begin sufficiently and then they progress to a more advanced uh, state, all right? The black and white television is now become a flat screen, high definition, surround sound multimedia center. Concerned parents when they're young usually are more strict on their children and a little bit more stern and then as they grow older and meld with age they become more loving and patient. Even rigid business models that start off often transform into dynamic open-ended applications that are ready to embrace the masses. Judaism was divinely inspired by God and it sufficiently expressed an acceptable devotion to God. But just like the Model T was not a comfortable ride, Judaism was not an easy religion to live. When Jesus came fulfilling the law and the prophets and shattering all the barriers between man and God by ripping the veil in half through his death, he parked the Model T of religion in the garage and he opened the Rolls Royce of relationships to the world. It was, a not e it was not an easy thing for the Christian Jews to embrace right off the bat. And we see in Scripture that many of them wanted to get rid of that Rolls Royce of a relationship with Jesus and go back to that Model T Ford that was uncomfortable because it made them feel more religiously inclined. The book of Hebrews found in the New Testament was written to these Christian Jews to help them transition uh, into the idea that Jesus is a better way, that the relationship with Him is a better way, and that Christ is supreme and completely sufficient for salvation. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is superior to angels, Jesus is superior to Moses, Jesus was superior and is superior to their high priests and priests, and Jesus was superior to their sacrifices. The book of Hebrews, whose author we aren't sure about, wrote for these specific purposes. And it teaches us that Christianity or a relationship with Jesus by faith surpasses Judaism as a better covenant. And if you remember before when I've talked about Hebrews, the operative word for that book is better. The Old Testament had its ways. The Hebrews teaches a better way. And this is important in the context of what we're going to discuss. Chapter 1 of Hebrews teaches, among other things, that Jesus is greater than the angels. Chapter 3 teaches that Jesus is greater than Moses. Chapter 4 teaches that Jesus is greater or better than the Old Testament priesthood. And we discussed the Aaronic priesthood last week. Remember the context of the book of Hebrews was to show the Christian Jews who were equivocating in their faith in the Lord uh, and trying to go back to that older model that a relationship with Jesus is a superior way. I've repeated that twice. Then we come to chapter 7 of Hebrews. This is so important. Chapter 7 is key to this discussion tonight. If you want to understand really what we're talking about, after the show's over or go to your pastor, if you're LDS, break out your uh, King James Version, get some commentaries, get, the, uh, get a lexicon, and read Hebrews chapter 7 closely. And then look to see what has been said about that if you don't understand it. Because it is the key to understanding what we're going to talk about now. All right? And what it talks about is this thing called Melchizedek. And this thing or this person called Melchizedek was mentioned in the Old Testament. 
It seems like in Mormonism, whenever there is something different or unique that's in the Bible, Joseph Smith offered a very far-fetched, extra-biblical view of it and kind of made it into this thing that has really no relevance to the entirety of the Bible. Consider what he said about John the Baptist and the three Nephites living forever on this earth until Jesus comes again. And Mormons believe that John, uh, not John the Baptist, John the Beloved and the three Nephites wander this earth in their bodies not having died. They're still on this earth alive somewhere. That was one of the strange things that, that Joseph introduced. The city of Enoch. We know that the Bible teaches us that Enoch was translated. Joseph Smith extended that, made it different, made it unique, and said it not only Enoch, but the entire city he lived in was taken up into heaven. And the Mormons believe in a thing called the city of Enoch, which is extra-biblical and different. If there is a mystery or uncertainty in the text of the Bible, Joseph addressed it, expanded it, and called it the restored truth. Now, think about it. When it, came, when it comes to understanding matter, creatio ex nihilo, no. Uh, Joseph Smith redefined that. When it comes to understanding the creation, Mormonism gives a different view. When it comes to understanding the Mount of Transfiguration, when it comes to understanding God as a spirit, or the hearts of the children turn to their fathers in Malachi, when it comes to understanding marriage or the temple, all of those things are different in Mormonism than what the biblical Christian uh, church teaches. The virgin birth, the Bible, the plan of salvation, atonement, grace, heaven and hell, all of these have different twists than what the Bible presents. Okay? Last week we covered the misapplication of the Aaronic priesthood in the church today. Well, according to some very suspect timelines, between May of and June of 1829, Joseph said Peter, James, and John visited him and restored what he called the Melchizedek priesthood to the earth through him. Doctrine and Covenants, LDS Scripture 84, 19 through 22 reads, and this greater priesthood, talking about it in, in, in relation to the Aaronic priesthood, and this greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of God is manifest, and without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh, for without this no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Bruce R. McConkie said in Mormon Doctrine, page 481, The presence or absence of this priesthood, this Melchizedek priesthood, establishes the divinity or falsity of any professing church. He adds, If there is no Melchizedek priesthood on earth, the true church is not here and the gospel of Christ is not available to men. Where the Melchizedek priesthood is, there is the kingdom, the church, the fullness of the gospel. All right. Mormonism teaches that the name Melchizedek was given to this priesthood to avoid the repetition of the name of God. They don't call it God's priesthood. It's called Melchizedek priesthood so that people don't use the name of God over and over again. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 107. They teach that, the Melch that Melchizedek was the greatest high priest ever. That's in Alma 1319 that he had the highest priesthood that was offered eternal, meaning God has always operated by this Melchizedek priesthood. This priesthood is how God operates too. All right, and that it was given to Adam and passed down generationally until the children of Israel. And according to McConkie, they rebelled and rejected the higher law 
and the fullness of the priesthood uh, therefrom. And so the Melchizedek priesthood was kind of taken away by God and the Aaronic priesthood was given in its place. The Aaronic priesthood then became the authority on earth until Jesus came. The Melchizedek priesthood was lost from the earth when the death of the last apostle and was restored to the earth by Joseph Smith when he said Peter, James, and John visited him and gave him this Melchizedek priesthood. And that the LDS church, of course, is the only church on the face of this earth that has this priesthood. Therefore, it has the authority to do these ordinances that are required for salvation. That's a lot of information I know, but I'm kind of giving you the summary of what this Melchizedek priesthood is. Last week, I taught you that 12-year-old to 18-year-olds receive the Aaronic priesthood. This week, we're talking about those who are 18 years of age and older receive this higher priesthood that the LDS call the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, I have to admit, if you didn't know the Bible, and if someone came knocking on your door and explained first there was an Aaronic priesthood, and then there was a Melchizedek priesthood, and there were different degrees of, of this, it would kind of make some sense. And um, it's orderly, and it's processional, and there was a, a person named Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And, and so you might say, well, it does give men some meaning. It ties them into this, this rite of passage of becoming a man and having this priesthood, and it keeps, keeps them operating on, on a really good thing. So don't criticize the Melchizedek priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood because it's a good form for men to, to stay in line with. Well, let's look at the biblical understanding of Melchizedek, this name Melchizedek, before we, we make any judgments. When, it comes to, when we read the Old Testament, it's important that we understand what a type is, T-Y-P-E. And a type is a figure or a representation of something or something to come, all right? The Old Testament is full of types. Uh, Egyptian bondage was a type for sin. Moses was a type for the Messiah. The Exodus was a type for leaving the world behind. When the children of Israel did the Exodus, it's a, it's a type for leaving the world behind. The Passover lamb, easy, was a type for Jesus, the, the Lamb of God. All these were types of Jesus. The pillar of fire, manna from heaven, water from the rock. The flesh pots were a type for sin. The sacrificial offering, the festivals and feasts, the brazen serpent, all representative of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. They All these types point to Jesus. Look at the tabernacle. There were three entrances into the tabernacle. There was a gate. Jesus calls himself the sheep gate. There was a door. Jesus says, I am the door. There was a veil. Hebrews talks about the veil being the flesh of Jesus now that he sacrificed. All of it is Jesus. All right. The seven articles of furniture that are found in the tabernacle, that God required these articles of furniture to be in there, they were specifically made. And they had specific purpose. The brazen altar was a type for the cross. The laver, we are washed clean by uh, Christ. The golden lampstand, Christ is the light. The table of bread, Jesus is the bread of light. The altar of incense, Jesus is our intercessor. The mercy seat, Jesus is merciful. One of my t favorite types in the Old Testament is the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 10 and 11 says this, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, and you shall overlay it with pure gold, and you shall overlay it inside and out, and you should make it a crown of gold all around. Now, acacia wood is a thorny, gnarled kind of wood, all right? So that is the frame of the, um, of the Ark of the Covenant. And then God has them put pure gold on the outside of this Ark. So it represents the Ark was all wood, the, the Ark was wood, the Ark was gold. 
Jesus was man. Jesus was God. It's all types of who Jesus is, and that's what it points to. When people criticize the LDS Church for not being Christian, it's because they don't bring these types in, and, and when Jesus came, realize that they tie up in him and that they point to him. And even if they do realize it, they go back like the Jews did and try to reinstitute these other things of the law to make themselves feel maybe more religious. I don't know the reason, but they aren't necessary relative to what we, we, we read in Hebrews chapter 7. So what about Melchizedek? I've said this, he was a type of Jesus Christ. He was not, he did not represent a priesthood that had to be handed down like the Aaronic priesthood. That's very important if you're LDS to understand. Melchizedek did not represent a priesthood that could be handed down to different people and given to different men today. He, Melchizedek the man was a type for Christ. Uh, recall last week when we explained that prior to Sinai, the patriarchs, they had the right to be the princes and priests of the priesthood, of the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, but it wasn't a Levitical priesthood then. They, the patriarchs from Noah and Adam and all of them had this right, okay? And then Melchizedek was the great high priest prior to the establishment of the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood at Sinai. I hope you're following me. I'm trying to make sense. It's, it's for a short time, but this is important stuff. So when we combine the idea that Melchizedek was a, a rightful high priest and that he was a figure of the final high priest to come, then we can begin to understand what, what Melchizedek was biblically. All right. In this context, let's read the verses that speak of him, and there aren't very many. And you're going to be amazed. I, t I tell you right now, listen closely. You're going to be amazed at how these things about Melchizedek were a type for Jesus, okay? Genesis 14, 18. I'm going to break this down. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Okay, so let's example it. We see a person by the name of Melchizedek. We see his name was Melchizedek. His position was king of Salem. His offering was bread and wine, and his office was the priest of the Most High God. First of all, Melchizedek appears to have been a real man. Now, there's even debate within the Christian church as to whether this was a Christology, or I think uh, Christophany, excuse me, which means it was Jesus pre-incarnate visiting, or if it was an actual person. I believe it was an actual person. The rabbis of old believed that um, Melchizedek was Shem, Noah's son, okay? I believe he was a real person, okay? But one thing we do know, whether he was, it was a Christophany or whether he was a real person, we know Melchizedek was a type for Christ, all right? Secondly, let's look at his name, Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name in Hebrew is Malki Sedek, T-S-E-D-E-K, Malki Sedek, all right? And it signifies my righteous king or king of all righteousness. That's his name. That's what it means broken down. The name had its origins from the pure and religious administration of Melchizedek's government. He carried that priesthood that was rightfully Adam's and Noah's and he still had that priesthood and he oversaw that area. In, uh, a, but we know when we look at Christ, it can only be applied to Jesus as the only righteous one, the potentate for righteousness, okay? Third, let's look at King of Salem, all right? This says Melchizedek was the King of Salem. Is this Salem, Massachusetts? No. Have you ever heard of Jerusalem? Jerusalem, that is what he was. He was the King of Jerusalem, 
All right. Psalm 7, uh, 76, 1 through 2. And Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So we know that as the prince of Salem, he was the prince of Jerusalem. Who was the prince of Jerusalem? And what does Salem mean? What does Shalom mean? What does Jerusalem mean? City of peace. Okay. Who is the prince of peace? We know what he, who he is, and we know what Melchizedek stood for. All right, remember, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, it all ties in. Okay, then let's go to fourth. What did Melchizedek bring to Abraham? What did Melchizedek bring to Abraham? He brought him bread and wine. He brought him bread and wine, the very elements of the communion of, this, of the Lord's Supper today. And why did he bring them? Why did Melchizedek bring this bread and wine to Abraham? He's refreshing Abraham and he's giving him refreshment for being victorious because God led Abraham to victory. And, and because Abraham let God lead him to victory, Melchizedek blessed him with refreshment of bread and wine. You don't think this is a type of who of Jesus? Yes, I do too. Okay, fifth, let's look at Melchizedek's office. It says he was a priest of the Most High God. In Hebrew, the word without the vowel markings is kun, K-H-N, in in transliterated, and then that which is Cohen, you know, and we, we recognize that name. And it signifies the office of both prince and peace because the patriarch sustained a double office at this time. All right. Melchizedek being a priest of the Most High God represents what? There is one priest of the Most High God, and we read about him in Hebrews last week. Whereas the priest of the Most High God goes into the Holy of Holies for us. And we're going to read about that in a second. What other evidences point to Melchizedek being purely a type for Jesus to come? A type for of priesthood? Is it a type for a priesthood? Did Joseph Smith make a mistake here and say this was a special kind of priesthood? Or was Melchizedek representing a future single priest? He was representing a single future priest. Look at the context of which all this stuff is written. Let's go to some ama- more amazing stuff. Hebrews 7, 1 through 4, it explains Melchizedek. So let's do it. Excuse me. <coughs> okay. Just read 1 through 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him, Abraham also gave a tenth of all. He was first being interpretation king of righteousness, and after that, also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So Hebrews makes it very clear who Melchizedek was relative to his kingship whether, uh, and relative to what he did. Even Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. That is amazing. What was the purpose of that? Abraham was certainly at the top of the heat when it came to authority and being the, the central figure. You remember how the Jews regarded Abraham at the time of Jesus? When John the Baptist preached repentance to the Jews, they would say to him, we have Abraham as our father. And remember what Jesus said to them about Abraham? He said, verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him for saying that. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and as, as an indication of Jesus' position of authority and power that were far above Father Abraham. Do you get why the scripture, one scripture in the Old Testament talks about this Melchizedek and how Abraham even paid tithes to him? Is this another type of how even Abraham will give homage and pay to, to the uh, Christ? Yes, it is. 
And then read uh, verse 3, chapter 7, speaks of Melchizedek. It says, this is really amazing. Verse 3, he was without father, without mother, without descent, neither having beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now, if Melchizedek was really a man, how could he be a man who doesn't have a father, who doesn't have a mother, who doesn't have a descent, and he neither has a beginning or end of days? This is what it means. The scriptures, the word, does not include anything about Melchizedek on purpose. It doesn't give his genealogy, which is so important to the Jews. It doesn't tell us who his father or mother was or who his descent was or where his beginning was or how he died. Why? Because he's a type for Christ who has no beginning or end, whose mother and father we don't know is when it's speaking of literalness. He is a type for Christ. And even the, the writers of scripture knew that. And they, the Lord, when they inspired them to write these books, didn't give them information on the genealogy of, of Melchizedek. Why? Because again, he's a type for Jesus to come, not a priesthood to be handed down. Okay. Finally, David gives us some insight into Melchizedek. David mentions him in Psalms, the only other reference in uh, the Old Testament. And it says, the Lord hath sworn and will not rechange his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David gives a prophetic utterance in Psalms and says that the Lord has sworn that Jesus our Lord is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What's he speaking of? Is he speaking of LDS men 18 and older uh, who get this Melchizedek priesthood? Or is he talking about Jesus Christ, Melchizedek as a perfect type for the Savior? Hebrews 5.9, listen. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, when it says the order, it's not talking about some lodge order of priesthood. It's talking about a high priest after what Melchizedek is in the scripture. And I've just given you all those things, how he was king of Salem, king of peace, all those things that I described. That's what the scripture is talking about. This was not another priesthood, my friends. So when Joseph used his imagination to come up with an Aaronic and a Melchizedek priesthood, it's not biblical. It's not taken in context. It's not part of the truth of what the scripture teaches. The problem with it is that when you read Hebrews chapter 7, and I, and I counsel you to do it again, Melchizedek translated to Jesus coming as our high priest, and he enters into the Holy of Holies. Again, we talked about that again, and offered himself once and for all. Why, why do we know this about Melchizedek? Because he was the king of righteousness. He was the king of peace. He brought bread and wine to Abraham. He had intimate access to God, being the high priest of God. And even Abraham acquiesced to him by paying him tithes. And like Jesus in so many other ways, uh, his heritage was not in the writings. He didn't have a genealogy, which is so unique because it had to relate to Jesus in the end without father and without mother. Let me conclude with uh, a final um, passage from Hebrews 7.22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Talking about relative to Melchizedek, the Aaronic priesthood. Excuse me, the Aaronic priesthood. And there truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by death. But this man, Jesus 
because he continues forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Now, I have to stop for a second. I'm getting a little technical, and then we're going to go to the calls. When it says that Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood, what that means is without successors, and it's untransferable. It's unchangeable. The Greek is a parabaton. And what it is, there's been much scholarly support to support that a parabaton means it does not have succession. It doesn't go further. A parabaton means it's stopped with the Lord. Now, LDS will argue that and say, oh, no, that's been incorrectly translated. There's a guy named Bob who comes on our site often, and he says that's not uh, translated correctly. But Bob called our show once, and he quoted from uh, some scholars by Gingrich and Art and Bauer, and he said, I'm quoting from Gingrich, Art and Bauer, and I want Bob to know that Gingrich, Art and Bauer, um, an authoritative lexicon in the Greek, say that that word aparabaton means without successors. So we know that when Jesus came, again, another fulfillment, he took this, this, uh, this, this position as the high priest and went before God and atoned for our sins and split the veil. Um, all of this points to the fact that it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. It can't be about anything else. And when a religion comes to understand that it's all about Jesus, the people change and they become spiritually reborn, and they become liberated and free and better in their life and happier and out from under the, the burdens of ordinances and rites and rituals and, and uh, obediences. And we pray that this will happen as you study the scripture. So please read Hebrews chapter 7, my LDS brothers and sisters. And I challenge you to, if you need to watch this show again, to help you get understanding, go to our website and watch it again. It's free and um, we can go from there. All right, let's go to the phones. We have Adam from Sandy, Utah online too. Adam, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing, man? Doing good. Hey, I got a quick comment for you. Uh, maybe elaborate on it a little. Um, let's see. Melchizedek is everlasting to everlasting and is a type for Jesus. And the LDS believes that Jesus earned a state of godhood. And they also believe that they too can become gods. Okay. And I think that this Melchizedek priesthood is is kind of like a foundation for that. Okay. That makes, actually, that makes good sense in the, when you uh, apply it to the LDS view. I think that's probably how they see it. So that's really a good point. I didn't, you know, to tell you the truth, I didn't think of it, but I think you're probably right. Cool, cool. Yeah, good, good comment, man. Thanks for calling. All right, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. God bless. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right. Okay, we're going to Larry in line three from Salt Lake City. Larry, you're in Heart of the Matter. Okay, we're going to... Larry. Oh. Salt Lake Turn that TV off, Larry. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay, great. Hey, I have a, a couple of comments. Mm -hmm. uh, one is, um, basically, if it was so important uh, for uh, the Melchizedek priesthood to be reestablished, why didn't Jesus or Melchizedek come and appear to Joseph Smith to begin with instead of Peter, James, and John? The second uh, comment is, 
Wait, don't give me a second. Let me answer that one for the LDS side. Okay. They believe that the last holders of the Aaronic priesthood, the last holders of the Melchizedek priesthood, appeared to Joseph. So the last holder of the Aaronic was John the Baptist. The last holder of the Melchizedek was uh, Peter, James, and John. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, second of all, I was just going to mention that nowhere in the New Testament, uh, when it came to uh, uh, Jesus giving the authority, uh, tacking his name, did he mention the word Melchizedek, yeah. uh, you know, with, yeah. where they're laying out of hands. It was not, uh, it was not passed as a Melchizedek priesthood. It was just the authority to act in his name. Yeah, amen. And, you know, Mark 9 has a great story, which I mentioned on here, and I think it should just be taken for what it was. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and uh, the, he's, they, his disciples see some guys, I think it was John the Beloved, see some guy casting out devils, and they get mad at him. They said, should we go rebuke him? And Jesus gives that, that famous quote, hey, if he's not against us, he's for us. Leave him alone. The authority comes by faith. It does not come by this old, this old uh, priesthood being passed down. Yeah, that's right. Well, you've done a great job explaining it, and I just wanted to make those comments. Thank you so much. Great comment. You bet. Hey, we'll talk to you later, and you take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to David XLDS on line four from Salt Lake City. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, how you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you? Good. Appreciate what you're doing. I I, uh, I called once before. I'd like to... I'd like to have, uh, make a statement that I've read before in the church news work ending, week ending June 20th, 1998. It uh, puts everything in perspective. Everything else seems immaterial when President Hinckley says, quoting, In bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, President Hinckley spoke of those outside the church who say Latter-day Saints do not believe in the traditional Christ. No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. And then he goes on to say that for the Christ I speak appeared to Joseph Smith, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and uh, he left the grove that day and knew more of the nature of God than all. So it really doesn't matter about priesthood, temple marriage, relief society. If you've got the wrong God, the God of the Bible says you're going to hell. And uh, the, the, this, they're always calling you and telling you, well, we believe in Christ. Uh, we're another Christian denomination. Well, you... If you don't believe in the Trinity, you don't believe in the virgin birth, if your God was once a man who progressed to be God, that isn't the God of Christianity. And uh, to try to point it out, I say, okay, I'm a Mormon, but I don't believe Joseph Smith was a prophet, and I don't believe the Book of Mormon was the Word of God. Right. Well, you can't be a Mormon. Right. And uh, so it's, if you got the wrong God, uh, it's, uh, and it's interesting that uh, Mormonism was found by a, uh, uh, an angel and uh, Mohammed was visited by Gabriel. It's uh, it's interesting. Interesting parallel. Hey, David, great comment. I'm glad you called with that quote because it's a very important one, and I can't, I think it will help LDS understand that uh, there are differences, and they're standing by a difference that is definitely not biblical. And, and this church news week ending June 20th, and they... You there? Oh, I appreciate your time, Sean, and God bless you. God bless you, David. Thank you for calling. I want to make a, a clarification here, and I have to do this because this is what my heart says, and my heart uh, is tied to the Lord as best as it can be. And uh, the Mormon church and its doctrines, and when President Hickey gets up and says, I don't believe in the traditional Jesus like that, um, I know that there are LDS who, who don't buy that stuff. And I know that there are LDS who want the relationship with Jesus, and they want to be born again, and it's to you that we are speaking to. And we are, we are calling to you to give him a chance. 
don't listen to me if you don't want. Don't believe anything I say, that's fine. But go to the Lord and say, I want to be born again. Teach me, Lord. Take my life. I turn my will over to you. I want to be born again and I want to experience this. I'm going to trust you. And then trust him. And he will open your eyes and change things like you won't believe. We are calling out to you who want this relationship with the Lord. We know there are millions of Latter-day Saints who are never going to be touched or bothered by anything we say or do. And that's fine. They have their right to stand before God with, with their offering of their life and their religion. And we can't do anything about that. But we know that there are people who really are want, they really want to know. And that's who we're talking to. So great call, David. Let's go to Robert, first time caller on line two from Tooele, Utah. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, I, I just wanted to call in and ask you what the reference was in Psalms. Oh, uh, it was Psalms 110, I think. Let me look here quickly. Psalms 110, verse 4. 110, verse 4. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, you can also email me if you want. Make it a little easier. Uh, it's probably frustrating to get through the lines, and that's at www.bornagainmormon.com, and you can email your questions. We're going to Ryan in Provo. Ryan, you're on Heart of the Matter. All right. All I'm right. just um, wondering the interpretation of um, Psalms 82, um, where it says that ye are gods and children of the Most High. Yeah. What that means? Well, when it says ye are gods, if you read that, um, you read that the God there is a lowercase g. It's not the uppercase El Elo or Elohim, as the Mormons will say, which is the plural in the Hebrew. What it is, it's God lowercase. And what it's referring to in Leviticus, they talk about people being judges over other people. And they call them gods, lowercase g. And that's what it's referring to. Now, Jesus in the New Testament does a play on words. I actually think he's using humor there. When he uses their own scripture and says, hey, it says in Psalms that ye are gods. Why, why do you have a problem with what I'm saying here? But it's a tongue-in-cheek reference because when you look at that, the Hebrew word is not Elohim or not Elo. And uh, it refers back to a passage in Leviticus talking about people being judges over other people. Okay? You have your TV on. Pardon? Do you have your TV on? I do. It's on mute. Oh. Hey, uh, so d is that answer okay? Um, I, I don't truly... Believe that? I'm following what you're saying, but... You don't follow it? Just because of what Jesus says in the New Testament about it. Yeah, it, when Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, you'll see that the Greek word is still a lowercase g. He's not talking about God uppercase O-D or God uppercase G-O-D or uppercase G. He's talking about lowercase G. That's what he's saying. That's it. Okay. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Um, Why am I so good looking? Well, my mom. <laughs> Go ahead. What made you turn away from the church? Uh, what made me turn away from the church is that the church could not lead me to a personal relationship with God. And without a personal relationship to God, I could not survive on my own. I was a sinner. I, I could not change myself no matter what I did. 
I knew that uh, in spite of all my efforts at wearing the shirts and going on the mission and serving in the high council and doing all the things I was supposed to do, I was still lustful. I was still angry. I was still a jerk inside. I was still arrogant. I was all these things, and I could not live that bifurcated life. I, I stood there as a paradox. I was outwardly looking so good. Inwardly, I was full of dead, dried bones. So I went to the Lord, and, and I prayed to him, and I asked him to take over my life at the urging of a pastor or a preacher on the radio, and he did. And when he changed my life, it opened my eyes. And I became a Christian. And I, my heart is to the Mormons because I was one for so long. Praise God. There you go, brother. Thanks a lot, man. All right, we are going to Alex, first time caller from Boise, Idaho, on line one. Alex, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, uh, I, I, I live in Boise, Idaho, uh, which is predominantly filled with a lot of Mormons. Yeah. Uh, what is the uh, most effective way to witness to them? Uh, we get this question uh, quite often, Alex, and I think in my experience, and this is good, I'm glad you brought this up. I want you to know that this show is not the way to do it. This show is to arm you to be prepared for their comebacks when, if you get into a discussion. When I'm with my friends and family who are LDS, if I happen to talk to them, I talk about the Lord and how He changed my life and how I have peace through Him and rest that gives me an assurance of salvation because I trust in His promises. And when I, I just stay on that. I also talk about sin sometimes when I'm talking to the younger kids about how are, are you a sinner and, they, and how they'll skirt around that. And finally, we can get it down, narrowed down to where they are sinners. So I, I talk about sin and how they handle that. And I talk about the peace and comfort and joy and rest that I have in the Lord. Those are the two ways I do it. And um, unfortunately, because of the show, I have to get a little bit more acerbic and aggressive because we're, we're talking about doctrines here. But I, I highly recommend that strategy to you and a lot of prayer. Okay, thanks, man. All right, Alex, thanks a lot. Thank God you bless bye. you. Bye-bye. We're going to Scott, first-time caller on line four. Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, hello? Hey, Scott, you're on the air. Hi, um, I am a former Mormon. Mm -hmm. I, was, uh, I come from a great family. Uh -huh. uh, culturally Mormon, but after my mission, I found out the truth. Uh -huh. um, I, I'm not a believing Christian, but uh, I watch your show uh, every week, and I love your show. Okay. And I think you're, you're telling truth to Mormons. One thing I wanted to uh, bring to bear on this discussion is the fact that uh, this priesthood is used in a cultural sense. You know, uh -huh. when there, uh, a man is a young man, he is in the elders quorum, and then after a time, he can be brought into the high priest group. Right. And I think that it's used to uh, force a man to conform to Mormonism and to pay tithing and to, to really show that he's part of the group. Yeah, and I agree. Not, if he's not part of the group, this man stays in the elders' corn. You're right. Very good point. They're, they're 40, 45, 50. You know, they're, they're in there with uh, elders who are 19, 20, 21, yeah. and it's used as a form of punishment yeah. to keep a man towing the line. Yeah, LDS, that's a great point. Do you recognize that, Latter-day Saints? If you're a little bit controversial or if you haven't towed the line the way they want you to, that you're kept down in the, uh, the elders' quorum and you're sitting there as a 45-year-old man, there's 19-year-old kids in there as elders with you, and, and they're made high priests and put in bishoprics and you're still stuck in there. It is, it's a truly, it's a great point, and that's not God's way whatsoever. 
That's manipulation. Yeah, it's used to humiliate and emasculate the man who doesn't do exactly what he's supposed to do. Amen. Or if, God forbid, he's not successful enough financially. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. Emasculated position. Hey, I have a question before you go. Yeah. How, what do we need to do to get you to be a Christian? Well, I don't know. I feel like I have been so completely burned by Mormonism yeah. that I just I, I can't trust again. Hey, can you email me? I'm in town once a week. I'd love to get together and talk to you. Well, uh, look, I appreciate what you're doing because I think... Come on, don't back out on me. Let's do it. <laughs> I'll think about it. All right, you think about it and call me back. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, we are going to Ray, first-time caller in Ogden, Utah. Ray, you're on Heart of the Matter. Ray? Uh, this is Janie. Janie from... How you doing, Janie? Oh, I'm doing just great. I'm actually from Palmyra, New York. Wow. <laughs> but I'm living in Salt Lake City, and I wanted to let you know that you have the most tremendous message for Mormons that are living in this valley that are questioning why they don't have the power. The only power is in Jesus Christ. Amen. I was a Mormon for 22 years. I am set free, and my only desire is to see other members of the church curious enough to watch your program and listen to your research so that they can feel and know the truth of Jesus Christ. Nothing that is in Mormon doctrine can get me any more saved than I already am. Oh, great comments, Janie. Really appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. We all love you. Thanks so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. She has to be a Christian to love me. I mean, so uh, we're making progress in the state, bit by bit. All right, now we're going to Ray again. First time caller online too. Ray, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm watching on TV as we speak. Okay. All right. I guess you could say my question is like in two parts. Um, number one, okay, when I, I work around a lot of young kids, you know, these are like guys that are getting ready to go on their mission, the whole nine yards, and. Uh, you know, whenever you talk to them about Christianity, the first thing they do is they just say, well, you know, the Bible's been messed with, the Bible's been, you know, twisted around, the Bible hasn't been translated correctly, blah, 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 blah. Why do they read it? Yeah, really good question. You know, why do they still bother even reading it? If, if the, is this the church teaching them to just knock the Bible whenever it contradicts the views of the Book of Mormon? And, you know, I, I just... I'm lost on that one. Well, you know, I don't think that they sit down and purposely teach, uh, hey, if something contradicts it in the Bible, just knock the Bible. But what I think happened is when, they, when Joseph Smith said, we believe the Book of Mormon be the Word of God, we also believe the Bible be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly, that threw in a whole bunch of ugliness against the Bible. And when you think about it, if the Bible was tr perfect to Mormons, they never would have needed a, a Book of Mormon or Continued Revelation or any of the other books they use. So they had to kind of attack the Bible yeah. in, in order to make the other books legitimate and their prophets legitimate. Yeah, no, I get you. I mean, is there, but uh, as far as like uh, going to translation, I mean, do they have anything to really back up their claims? Well, there are, I mean, there obviously are, are problems, uh, in the Bible when it comes to translation or it comes to differences between the different translations. There's some, there's some issues, but those issues are minuscule and so minor to the meaning of what's going on in the Word. And they're very few. I mean, we're talking about like 0.1% 
of, uh, of the Bible as having some question. And what we found before is that the questions that have always been criticized as time's gone on, we've, the Bible has been proven sure. Every time. It looks like the Bible is guilty of being bad, and then in time the scholars discover that the Bible was actually right. So those things that we have the problem with, I'm sure, giving time and scholarship, we will find that they are fine too. Oh, well, thank you. You know what I, you know what I say when they tell me uh, the Bible is not translated correctly? What? I, I say, uh, show me the verses that aren't translated correctly, and I won't read them at all. <laughs> and then let's just read the ones that are, are okay. And, you know, it's a ridiculous thing to start with. So, so great. Know, something interesting, too, and I hope I'm not taking up too much time, but uh, uh, one thing they always point to, it's like whenever you tell them about the, the thousands upon thousands of changes made in the Book of Mormon, yeah. the first thing they point out is like, well, do you have an original copy of the Book of Mormon? Yeah, right. <laughs> right, yeah, good one. Hey, great stuff, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you, and God bless, my friend. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Don, first-time caller on line three. Don, you've got a minute, my brother. Okay. Park City man. Don? Yeah. You're on, buddy. Hey, Sean. How are you doing? Good. you got to turn your TV off. Yeah, I, I just did. Okay. Um, I'm Don Losey. I actually served with you in... Hey, Don Losey, ex-missionary companion. It is so good to see you. Yeah. And I'm... I'm angry. <laughs> Tell me more. I was just thumbing through the TV. I saw you on there. What happened? What, what is your mission right now? What is going on with you? Well, you know what? That, it will all be explained because we only have a minute, Don. Uh, but you can call me. You can email me. We'll talk on the phone. I come to Park City often. We can get together. Um, I'll send you the book. I'd love to see you again. But maybe you can share with the uh, audience what kind of missionary I was. Well, quite honestly, Sean was an amazing missionary. He'd wake up every morning and bodybuild before would go out and track in the cold of the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. And he worked really hard. He was I was committed, man. Committed. He I was, was committed. committed, but I'm mad. We'll, well talk later. Don't be mad. Hey, thanks for the call, Don. I look forward to it. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, that's a, that was a unique call. Listen, we're going to wrap it up. If you're on the line, I'm sorry we weren't able to get to you. Uh, please call back. And, uh, and we will try next week. If you have a pressing question, let's do this. Out of necessity, I have to cover this. Um, we get many um, people asking about something I don't particularly like to address, but I'm going to address it, much to the criticism I'm sure we'll get. A number of people ask uh, how they can contribute financially to our ministry. And uh, I need to approach this uh, in a few ways. First, I want to quote uh, 2 Corinthians 9. Seven. It says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, or uh, for God loves a cheerful giver. Please do not feel any compulsion. Let God be your guide and no one else. If you desire to contribute to our ministry, that's fine, but do not feel compulsion or guilt. Give as you feel as you feel you should. Second, if you do want to give, make sure that you give to your local church first. Make sure that if you're going to give funds to us, that the church you go to locally has, has received the, the funds that you would pay to them. And that's very important to us because we're here to support the local churches. 
Listen, next week we have two more shows before the end of the year. I hope we can cover some things that are going to be of interest to you, and I think we're going we're gonna to have a great wrap-up show uh, when there's just one week left. So God bless you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake the storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start.